bus, musicians, music venues, everybody involved in the industry talk to each other, promote each other, um, support each other. That's what Houston has always meant to me, and KPFT is pretty much uh, the radio embodiment of what I think uh, the Houston music community is. We would be lost without them. So hope you keep listening. Donate, support. You'll hear us sometime soon. Kids in America. Well, yes, we well, are. Welcome to Growing Up in America on KPFD Pacifica Radio. Bob Sanborn here from Children at Risk along with uh, co-host Lauren Beagle. Lauren, That's how me. are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Hey, I, I've been like gone for a couple I know. Weeks. It's been a while. Yeah, but it's exciting to be back here live. They've, they've been studio. calling in begging for you. Yeah, I know they have. Yeah. The, the one person, my mom. All, was yes. Yeah. Jenny was calling. <laughs> my daughter. Yes. Yeah, she so. was saying, where's where's dad? Bring him back on the radio. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's good to be back. And we have a great show today. So welcome to Growing Up in America. Today on the show, um, and this our public policy show where we do a discussion on children, public policy, and how do we as a city and community do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. Uh, Andrew Hairston's on the show today, Lauren. Um, he is. And he's the Education Justice Project Coordinator over at Texas Appleseed in uh, Austin. And they always seem to be on top of a lot of good issues. Yeah. I mean, Texas Appleseed are the go-to people for quite a few things. Yeah, so, so I'm excited, excited to, to have Andrew. Andrew's sister used to work at Children's, by the way. Dixie. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, cool I'll make sure to talk to Andrew a little bit about that. <laughs> Gulshan Rahman is on the show. She's the, the Assistant Director of Compliance and Family Services, uh, talking about COVID's impact on early education. That ought to be. We have quite a few bills and some things moving there. So I think that'll be a good, good context for some of our, our big things moving this week. Megan Green will be joining us. She's the Director of Prevention and Early Intervention Services over at DePelchin. So mm-hmm. we're excited to have her with us. And uh, and then everyone's favorite segment, what is fast becoming everyone's favorite segment, is uh, Gen Z. Gen Z Talk with Becky. And uh, yep. Becky's here in the studio with us. And uh, Becky, are you going to – you have some really good slang for us a little bit later in the program. Is that right? Yeah, you'll be very much satisfied. You'll learn some – everyone will hate me in the office, I'll say that. Because oh, um, I will learn these words yes. and I'll use them constantly. Yes, I have gotten complaints. I went from being everyone's favorite coworker to being – Least. Yeah. least favorite. I will proudly admit to being someone who filed one of the complaints, at least one, from last time. So I'm excited to see what you're Becky signing slays, us up for. But this she time. slays oh, when she God. does this, so it's just... Uh, yeah, I love it. Yes. <laughs> Becky, this is not very on fleek of you. <laughs> the the uh, On fleek has passed, I'm sorry to say this, uh, Lauren. But I'm uh, actually was hoping you would catch that as a test, 
And that was good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think Becky comes with a strong word game, so I'm really Mm -hmm. excited about that. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So anyway, welcome to Growing Up in America. And uh, we'll continue with some good segments. Thumbs up, thumbs down today is going to be good. And as always, we're brought to you by Children at Risk, right? Uh, The voice of Texas's children. Uh, It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas's youth. Yesterday, Lauren, I was in a press conference uh, with uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, talking about uh, House Bill 30, a federal bill that is going to ban uh, this idea of uh, grooming and trafficking on school grounds and other after-school programs. So Mm -hmm. we had a, a, a group of people. I would love at some point in the future of the show to bring some of the great uh, advocates in the fight against trafficking here in Houston back to the show. I know we've had many of them on, uh, but it was a powerful press conference. And there there are things going on around us here in Houston that I think are important to uh, and noteworthy, right, for us to focus in. So uh, it's one of the things we do, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, very good. Uh, you want to start off us off with a little bit of thumbs up, thumbs down? We have a little bit of thumbs up, thumbs down music. I love the thumbs up, thumbs down music. Dime cómo hacemos Si tú me deseas Yo a ti también Hacer a todo te quiero comer Thumbs up, thumbs down music is just here to keep your Spanish sharp, Dr. Bob. Claro que sí. Yesterday at this press conference, by the way, no one spoke Spanish, and so I went out, alguna palabra para la prensa española, la prensa latina. Siempre con una palabra. Una palabra para la prensa. Siempre con una palabra. A ver. Okay, very good. Thumbs up, thumbs down in English, standardized tests. Ah. As I feel like I know my opinion on this is a little torn between me as someone who works at an organization that relies Mm -hmm. on data Mm -hmm. and me as someone who wants students and schools to succeed. I feel like sometimes well, those are two those are not necessarily like mutually exclusive. They don't have to they? be, yeah. but I think the topic of standardized tests is where they can get they can feel a little more at odds. What do you think? Here's what I think. I think that when you're measuring, when you're being accountable, the cheapest way to do it is standardized test. Mm-hmm. And whenever you do something that's the cheapest way to do it, not always great, right? Sure. And so uh, I think you know, I remember being shocked when I moved back to Texas and my daughter was in the fifth grade and she came home and she basically said, today we learned how to take a test. And I'm like, what the, what, what, Great. what the, that's th- awesome. You know, this yeah. is not what education is supposed to be about. And I think in many ways, and, and you and I have visited schools, in many ways, this is what's happening. There's a mm-hmm. lot of, let's get ready for the tests. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all about the test. And I think that's not the proper way. So I think if you look at it for, through that lens, uh, standardized testing uh, could be a bust. However, at the same time, we want to know how our schools are doing. And if we're going to do it the cheapest way, I mean, yeah. standardized tests, but wouldn't it be great if we could figure out a better way to do it? Yeah. Or I think when I think about it, it's not even, I think there are issues with the way we standardize tests. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was talking to actually one of our A plus coaches about it and he was bringing up, I forgot the term, but it's basically like, for example, students who don't speak English fluently are getting dinged, not just in reading, but also in math because the math problems are word problems. And also in, you know, all the other categories, because we know they don't speak English as well or fluently because they failed the reading test. used to be available in Spanish, right? but because our state and all its wisdom is like, oh no, it needs to be in English. Right. So we have those issues with the test, but I think also the bigger issue, because I think testing is important. At some point we have to know Accountability is important. Accountability is important. Checking in, knowing our students learning what we think we're teaching them. That is important. I think... 
for me, a big issue is how important those test scores are. Because I mean, like, I would hope that my, you know, having a job in the case of our teachers, my ability to progress in my career for our students was not judged on like one day out of the year. Right. And so I think like we can do testing and take those that data and use it, but we don't have to make it the basis for teachers continuing to work in the school. Kids like that be the hundred percent thing that decides if they move on. Like I think we make it so high stakes that that also creates the problem. Like if it didn't, I took I went to private school, so we took standardized tests, mm. and I'm sure you know had I bombed every single one of my tests, they would have probably brought in my parents and had a conversation. Did you guys do the Iowa Basic Test? Was that the one that you guys did? It was the ERB. I don't oh, know what okay. test that yeah, is, yeah. but you know it tested all the star things: sure. reading, math, whatever. But but your I never wasn't heard about built. that score ever again. Yeah. We sat down for ERB week. We took them for half the day. We moved on. Again, I'm sure if I'd bombed all of them and demonstrated I couldn't read, we would have done something. But like, it was a relatively low stakes situation. We didn't, we weren't prepping for it. I wasn't practicing bubbling answers. It was just, we want to take this test. We check in on how you're doing. Here is the report. And then we might go from there. And I feel like that's a better model. So thumbs up, thumbs down. I am thumbs down. On testing. On. I feel like it's always... Are you t- thumbs down on accountability? I'm thumbs up on having tests. I'm thumbs down in how we currently use those tests. Mm-hmm. Wow, very good. I'm thumbs up on accountability. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that the system, we use the these tests designed by Pearson. And so Pearson pays a lot of money to the state. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like if you go back to like the Iowa Basic or some of the tests mm-hmm. that used to be given so the teachers would have a tool to determine where the learning needed to be directed. Right. Very different than the way this high stakes testing yeah. that we have today. So uh, so yes to accountability. Let's figure out a better system. Agreed. Very good. Uh, you're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFD Pacifica Radio. Uh, here we go. the script for the hell of it addicted to betrayal but you're relevant you're terrified to look down Quintanilla is in the room. She is our slang Gen Z, Gen Z slang expert. Uh, Becky Quintanilla, uh, staff member superior at uh, Children at Risk. So uh, Becky, how did you become an expert on Gen Z slang? I guess you're Gen Z. Yeah, um, I think I would contribute to the year I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that plays in a big part. I also want to clarify, I do have a real job at Children at Risk. I am a project coordinator. I'm not just you a Gen are? Z. Yes. Yeah, 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 we yeah. Learned. yeah, just in case y'all didn't know. I just I've just been sending know, Becky my this. tweets and asking her to make them sound cooler. I got so, I have like, to build my LinkedIn somewhere. Yeah. So. Well, my Twitter help, account. Could you help with my uh, social media as well, Becky? Would that be... Uh... You know what? I think we also have someone that's in charge of yeah. social media. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Uh, all right. What's our first word today? So first word today is Riz. Oh, man. I feel like I've seen that on mm-hmm. TikTok, you know? You have. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to let... I'm not going to help you, Dr. Bob, but I am going to laugh as you try to figure this out, because yeah, I know figure. what this means. Yeah, um, uh, and and uh, Lauren never let an opportunity to laugh at me slip by. That's never. for sure. Uh, I don't. Know, I can't remember what Riz is. Is it? Well, I'll give you a hint. Um, it's like a way to describe someone, something. I guess um, something. Yeah, well, it's it's I, an abbreviation of I, another word. Also, 
I will um, give an example of someone who has Riz. Okay. Okay. So Pete Davidson has Riz as seen with many beautiful girlfriends. Very successful women. um, Successful women. So you look at him and you're confused and you wonder what it is. It's It's Riz. Riz. So sort of like a certain attitude, a certain... um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's game. Game. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it used to be game. Mm, yeah, now it's, now it's to Riz, Riz, which okay. I believe is short for charisma. Yeah, oh, so that's Riz. where it comes from. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I never knew about the short for charisma. Mm-hmm. So that's very good. So a little Riz, right? Mm-hmm. So who on the team at Children of Riz has a little Riz? Pretty much no one. I, yeah, I was going to say I don't know enough <laughs> is about. It, is it only for guys? I was going to say I feel like guys? one at least currently. It's, it's I'd say a newer word, and it's used pretty i mean in the same way i don't think it was as common to say like a woman has game it was mostly men which like yeah. we can dissect that so like maybe. rico has riz or, I, uh, the, the on the board right rico yeah going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking over I, I i could see it okay i think good. he's gonna turn off your mic yeah <laughs> i think he tried to turn off my mic i think that's i hear we on. have um ellen sanborn calling in next to report mm-hmm. did dr bob ever have riz did he we'll ever find out mm. that's a good I question i'm shocked yeah, to hear good, that yeah, yeah um next one is eras which is not really say that again era or eras eras mm-hmm. like time eras like this is your era that's exactly what it means but Used in a slang version, you just use it to describe something. So an example is, we've used this at the office, our social media is in its pink era. A pink era? What is that? We just started using pink a little bit It's like to describe like a hobby or what you're doing. So like I'm in my dog mom era or my dog sports era. Okay. Because right now that's like a lot of what I'm doing. I'm in my like Austin girl era because I'm about to move. So I'm like in my activist era. Sure. (laughs) Or you well, were just in your Europe era. I was yeah. just in Europe era. Yeah, like you were in my your, Portuguese era. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, okay. I feel like it's mostly to describe like short term yeah. stuff. Okay, so. short term. Okay. It's like I'm doing this now, and I'm not saying I'm going to commit to it forever. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if I'm going to do dog sports forever, live in Austin forever, but like mm-hmm. right now, that's a big part of of what I'm up to. All right, eras. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So uh, get a little riz for a new era in your life. Yeah. You're in your Riz era. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Actually, we probably shouldn't say that. No, don't no. say that's that. That's a good no, thing. No, no. Yeah. No. LMA right. is calling now. <laughs> <laughs> um, next one we have, it's giving. Giving. Yeah. Mm. Giving. It's yeah. giving. Oh, yeah. it's giving. It's giving. Mm-hmm. It's giving. So it's like it's uh, a benefit to you. It's a giving. More to society, I would oh. say. Oh. Yeah, like it... Um, are you familiar with it's like serving, like serving looks? Okay, we'll we'll you find guys, another. You guys, you know this is like Gen Z trying to teach. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, are you familiar with if something is slaying? Yeah, sure. Okay, so giving, I would say, is similar to slaying. Oh, like, someone. Okay. It that look is giving. It slays. Okay. Mm-hmm. It also can be used to compare something. So. So someone who has a lot of riz is giving. I would say if you have a lot of riz, you probably can like get a date with a woman who's giving. Okay. Okay. <laughs> like if you have riz, Perfect you're showing me a picture, and I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, she's giving. Okay. All right. It also can be compared. Got it to going something. on. Yeah. Someone mm-hmm. has it going on. Yeah, is there giving. you go. Okay. Sometimes you can say it's giving 2012. True. Oh, that's so, good, yeah, that's right? A good comparison. So it's giving 1990. Yeah, or like exactly. if someone shows you something that like is ugly you can be like it's giving 
sewer rat. So like when I was in college, a lot of the women I dated were like giving 1960s, even though it was not the 1960s. Yeah, like it was like what, the 1930s? <laughs> I was like, Dr. Bob, this is really confusing. <laughs> Dr. Bob, we don't know what year we went to college, but we assume it was World War One. <laughs> <laughs> so that but one's Very fun. funny. Very mm-hmm. funny, guys. Oh, yeah, thank yeah. you. Go on. My job is on the line, guys. Yeah, no, no. Uh, the next one is similar. Um, yeah. I'm going to use it with a girl. Mm-hmm. This is our last female. one, I'm guessing. Second, but yeah. Never mind. I, I take back the one I'm going to do. Okay. Ick. What is it? Mm. Ick. Ick. I hate it. It's it's not so good. You Ick. It. Ick is uh, mm-hmm. like, oh, man. Uh, if there are a number of icks about a person, things that you don't like about them, right? It doesn't have to be about a person. Or about anything. Yeah. I'd say I use it mostly in the context. I say this one is mostly used by women to describe weird things that about men guys. do yeah. that aren't like inherently gross. Okay, like I hate when men wear flip-flops. So if I were dating a guy and he came out in like true thong flip-flops and I saw his toes, that would give me the ick. Yeah. But I know other people don't feel that way. I've seen some of the chats. You talked about that. And and one of the staff members said she hated when people were wearing like tank tops or ripped tank tops. Yes, exactly. So it's like something that, and it's not just like I don't like it. It's like I can no longer be interested in that person because I've been, it's been cursed. Like I saw this thing and I can't unsee it. Like I I saw them in thong flip-flops. I can't unsee that. I have an example of that, but it happened a little too late into the relationship. So it happened (gasps) a year into the relationship, I couldn't. Oh no! Um, was that ache? the end of the relationship? No, no. I'm still with him. But, oh. uh, it wasn't that big. It's very. It wasn't that big. It's uh, pouring milk before the cereal. <gasps> Lauren, do you do that? No, I don't. That is an ick, though. That's <laughs> yeah. horrible. I see nothing wrong with. I don't oh, do my. that. I don't do that. But I don't know how that, that could be a big it. ick. You know, it's it, just it, like it just gives me the chills. You don't yeah, like that? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. You guys are sensitive. Very good. Well, but there are other things that wouldn't give me the ick that Dr. Bob might give you the ick. Yeah. Can you think of something that might give you the ick? I'm not playing. So. <laughs> Ellen's already on the phone. <laughs> Ellen's got it turned all the way up. She paused. Yeah, I feel she was like doing. I, I I busted it out when I went with uh, eras, you know, uh, mm. or giving, giving. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. that was it for me. So very right. good, Becky Quintanilla. Yeah, thanks for having Gen me, Gen Z. Thanks, Becky. Thanks, Becky. <laughs> Hey, that was a good little segment. That was good. I always love the slang segment from Gen Z, right? You learn so much. I learn so much, and mm-hmm. I will promptly forget most of it. Yeah. But those that I do remember, I'll use like more that than like I should. That was like when you learned the up arrows. Yeah. <laughs> the little mountains. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What are those officially called? Up arrows? Up arrows. Okay, yeah. very good. Hey, on the line with us is Andrew Hairston. He's the Education Justice Project Coordinator over at Texas Appleseed. Andrew, it's been a long time. How you been doing, man? Hey, y'all. Uh, that was a really fun segment. I enjoyed listening. <laughs> did, did you learn anything, Andrew? I want to know. I did. I, I very much so did. I'm 31, so I think I'm a millennial, but I just took some notes, and I think I'm up to date on the Gen Z slang. Very good. Now, Andrew, do you yeah. have a sister? I do, yeah. I have a 26-year-old sister. Yeah, we're very close. Is that Dixie? Is that her name? Uh, Dixie, <laughs> no. Okay. See, I knew another Andrew Harrison who had a sister who worked at Children at Risk. Named, yeah, I get it, Andrew. I get what you're saying. Yeah, very good. Uh, what's your sister's name, Andrew? Angela. Angela. Okay, very yeah. good. Very good. Angela Harrison of Oklahoma. Yeah, very good. Hey, tell me, Andrew, what's going on in terms of education justice right now? What are the, what's the, one of the 
big things going on at Texas Appleseed with uh, school safety? It's been a whirlwind, Dr. Bob. So we published a report in late March called School Safety and Threat Assessments, Assessing the Student Beyond the Threat. We're really pushing the legislature to analyze bills that it passed in years previous to this one, rather than propose more draconian bills and pass them. I think we've generally done a good job with the many conflagrations that have been ablaze this session, but we'll see when it's done uh, after Memorial Day just how effective mm. we were. Uh, I'm going to the Senate Education Committee tomorrow to testify for HB 473, which shores up parental rights in the threat assessment process. Yep. Uh, we think that's good to have more parental engagement in that regard and to bring them in as partners as districts are conducting these teams and comprising them and pulling them together. But, yeah, it's just been a lot. T- tell me, Andrew, I mean, um, you know, we get reports every week from uh, uh, Jason Sabo and Mandy Kimball who are up there in Austin, and uh, it's just, uh, it just seems wild and discouraging sometimes. I mean, you know, we get our pieces of legislation that we pass, but the overall theme seems to be, a little much, huh, Andrew? Yeah, very much so. So we're almost a year removed from Uvalde, right? Yeah. That, that is commemorated with the gravity that it needs to be right on May 24th. But I think very swiftly over the past 11 and a half months, the legislature moved away from the root causes hmm. of that day, right? That that young man had not felt that he was in a safe and supportive school environment throughout his K-12 through education, that the school police officers were ineffective in preventing the tragedy. Uh, and they largely started pointing to things like his trunk conduct some years mm. past, right? And these kind of red herrings that just were not related to the reason that he shot Rob Elementary. Mm. So I think that that has very much so contextualized this session, right? That there was an opportunity for both chambers of the legislature to meaningfully address some of the root causes of school safety issues and the lingering detrimental impact of the pandemic. But it largely, the legislature largely punted on bringing forth meaningful change for young Texans across the state. Do you think, Andrew, that we've done a good job in terms of uh, letting people know the reality of what's going on in the legislative session? Or do you think that sort of the right wing has sort of dominated the conversation across the state where uh, that's what most people are hearing and, and they're, not, they're not hearing uh, the things that you and I are talking about? I've been blown away at the civic engagement this mm. session, Dr. Bob. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll follow it through the March for Trans Lives that occurred mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Yeah. And I'm sure if folks were tuned into Twitter and other forms of media yesterday. They saw some pretty horrifying images of peaceful protesters being detained and brutalized by the police. So I think there might be traditional media narratives, right, that folks aren't as plugged in, yeah. or that you know, a lot of these things are moving forward without public input. But what I'm seeing, you know, physically when I'm there at the building and then seeing on Twitter and other forms of media is that folks are absolutely fired up uh, and lifting up their voices against injustice and oppression uh, and are pushing legislators to actually act in ways that would be beneficial 
to Texans and to human life, yeah. more probably. But it's just a long game that we're it is. Yeah. In, right? <laughs> and it's um, almost like you can't have enough of this uh, dialogue that we're talking about, right? It's just oh, a, man. Yeah. It's, it's just You know, and, and part of it, as we realize as we've been drawn to this work at Children at Risk or Texas Appleseed, that some of these fights will succeed our lifetimes, right? Yeah. Fighting mm-hmm. this. You know, we'll retire from our roles, we'll pass away, and there will be another generation to come to fight for your truly safe and supportive school environments yeah. and for young people to have academic environments where they can thrive. But you just have to know that you're in that long arc of history and that you're fighting in your time as best as you can. Yeah. Lauren? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there are these, you know, as you said, red herring issues that were being labeled as school safety, which, you know, on the one hand, I think we're all playing defense against a lot of that, whether it's the crazy, you know, one door armed guards at the door stuff, or even the critical mm-hmm. race stuff. But I'd love to hear, you know, when Texans with te- when Texas Appleseed is talking about school safety, like, what are y'all focusing on? What what to you would make schools safe? What is that asking for beyond these crazy ideas coming out of the Capitol? Yeah, so we very much so focus on prophylactic and preventive measures, right, that you have to build up the safe and supportive school environments on the front end, mm-hmm. right, and invest in early childhood education and for the earliest learners among us to have these robust environments where they feel like they can thrive socially and emotionally. And I often opine that the difficulty with this is that you, if you've invested in a truly nurturing environment, is that you're just not going to see a news story that an 18-year-old person shot up a school, right? Mm-hmm. That the kids will just grow up and feel completely you know, enmeshed in their school environment and feel like, as they grow up and start working, that they are a part of their community and that they will live a meaningful and fulfilled 100-year life, right, in whatever way that means for them. And so we try to talk about that at the legislature. Uh, I think tomorrow will probably be the last time I offer testimony in the AA session, but I might sound like a broken record, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that the pandemic occurred, right? We can't divorce any kind of analysis of schoolyard fights or disruptive behavior that might be occurring right now from the idea that the pandemic did occur. And then two, that if you build up these really supportive school environments with the counselors, psychologists, and social workers who have the expertise in child development, then you will significantly reduce the likelihood that incidents of mass violence will occur on school campuses, uh, and you'll just see the kids, again, grow up and just feel like they can be fundamental yeah. parts of their community. Andrew, I wanted to ask you one last question before before we have to go with our time. Is what is the impact? Uh, I, I know that we've we've worked on CRT right across the state, and what's, sure. what's going to be the negative impact of all this, you know, anti-CRT work that's happening at the state legislature. I mean, what are some of the things we're starting to see across the state? Yeah, so I think during the session, and because of capacity, right, I couldn't weigh in on all the education issues that I wanted to this session. But one bill that kind of came to mind was HB 900 and its censorship of LGBTQ material, Mm. right? And so I think that is very much so a continuation of what occurred 
in the regular session of 2021 and the three special sessions that you can't talk about, you know, critical race theory just (laughs) stands in for racism, right? Yeah. And so let's move it forward and talk about any social justice topics, right? You can't talk about racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, these very real material oppressive systems for folks. And I'm not sure of the status of HB 900, for example, but it very much so is a continuation of the session of the idea that we're going to censor your access to information, right? Censor the topics that you can discuss in your classroom and ultimately put forth this revisionist history of America that's just not true (laughs) you know and and sometimes we celebrate when this stuff doesn't pass but what's happening is that it numbs us right and Mm. session after session so that when something does pass we think well it wasn't as bad as it could have been but indeed it's bad right and it's it's bad and it's well then that moves the goalpost so when the standard has become a little bit worse suddenly the status quo we are hoping to maintain is the worst thing when we're fighting against yeah. the really, really bad thing. So over time, like we say we're chipping away and at the same time there's being like chipped up. Like by little by piece, yeah. it goes the it goes both ways. Yeah. It just sucks. Yeah. It's it's uh, ridiculous. Go ahead. No, go on, Andrew. Well, I'll just I'll shout out my therapist in my last few minutes. <laughs> we yeah. spoke on Monday and he was like, Andrew, I just want you to like hold that you're dealing with a lot of vicarious trauma, right? Because me as a black lawyer, I feel very privileged to do this work and to be able to go to the legislature and engage in these conversations. But I'm also hearing from, you know, younger black folks, right, maybe in their early 20s or mid-20s who are talking about the very pernicious ways in which systems failed them, right? Mm -hmm. How they might have gone through foster care or had to deal with Mm -hmm. forms of abuse when they were younger, and so not only are you moving the goalposts, but it is exhausting to go to that mm-hmm. building and just have to contend with conversations of basic human dignity, right? Yeah. Where you're just fighting for human beings to be afforded dignity to live their lives in the ways that they want to. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's I'm something else. But, but you know what? We, we keep up the good fight and things, you know, when we look at election margins, we see them getting thinner and thinner. And we also know that if there are large portions of the state that aren't voting, if they started voting, it would be a whole new game for us, Andrew. And uh, that's the long game we're fighting for, right? So it's. Uh, I'm here. I'm here for the foreseeable future. I'll be a Texan <laughs> and I'll be fighting alongside y'all. <laughs> Andrew Harrison is over at Texas Appleseed. Andrew, thanks for the great work that you and the, everyone of the team there at Texas Appleseed is doing. Thanks for being on Growing Up in America today. Likewise to both of you. Thank you for having me. All righty. Take care. You're listening to Growing Up in America, KPFT. Still the one I need. I will always be with you. You got me all alone. Don't ever let me go. Say you're real loud if you fly. If you leave me, you ought to go. All right, a little countdown there. Gotta love the little countdown, don't you, Lauren? If it's Beyonce, I gotta love it. <laughs> Simple stuff. Just gotta love Beyonce. I was uh, I was on uh, doing a little winery tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds very bougie, doesn't it? In, it does. in Portugal, in the Douro Valley, and the uh, the the driver loved American music. Yeah. But when we put on Beyonce, he was like, "Is this American? You know, oh, it's just it's because yeah. she's not. She's international. Yeah. yeah she's so. universal. 
There are aliens bumping Beyonce. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, hey, on the line with us is uh, Christine Thomas. She's uh, with our Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. And uh, date of the day. Christine, hey, how you been doing, Christine? I'm great. It's good to, to hear you're on the radio, Dr. Bob. Oh, yeah. I love being on the radio. It's more fun when Lauren's with me, right? So I love uh, having Much Lauren. Much like anything else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. When it's the Beagle, we're all set. Hey, um, Christine, what's the piece? Of, what's the number of the day oh, today? Oh, we didn't preview our number. This we is the didn't. first reveal yeah. of the number, Christine. Oh, yeah. What is the number, Christine? I'll, I'll say it right here. So it's uh, 2,100 per one. I'm just going to just put it out there because there's a lot to talk about. So for every 2,100 people in Hidalgo County, there's only one physician. And, you know, if we look across uh, the health profession, um, it, it continues to get worse. So for every 3,600 people, there's only one dentist. For every 1,500 patients seeking mental health care, there's only one mental health pro- professional available. So Hidalgo County is one of many in Texas that have this health professional shortage area and it's considered medically underserved. So Hidalgo County is down in the Rio Grande Valley. It is, uh, um, Hidalgo County is uh, like McAllen right around there. So it's not the Brownsville, but it's the next county up as you go mm-hmm. uh, west in the valley. And um, when we look at that area, it's not exactly rural, right? I mean, it's sort of, uh, it has a suburban feel about it. It's populated. Uh, but what are the ramifications of that, Christine, when you have so few health professionals uh, for a population that is largely uh, living in poverty? Yeah, so I also want to preference that there's 131 counties in Texas that actually are experiencing this shortage. So it's not, you know, not just Puerto Rico, we want to highlight this area, but um, in general, we see that more patients will experience delays in access to primary care, which is a critical employment, uh, component to improving our health of our communities and reducing overall health care costs. I was just at a meeting uh Right before this meeting, I was over at Episcopal Health Charities, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the, sh- the shortage of physicians, but not only that, the shortages of physicians, of Latino physicians, and how medical schools here in the state of Texas, where you have 54% of our children are Latino in our schools, uh, we still have very few Latino physicians. And when you go into a community, whether it's Hidalgo County or uh, any other ca- county you know, along the border or many other counties in Texas, predominantly Latino, you still don't see as many physicians as we probably need to see. Uh, and, it's, and, and, and we're not even talking about a shortage of Latino p- physicians here right now. We're talking about just physicians, period, Christine. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's actually not just happened in Texas. This is a nationwide crisis. Um, and this is something that's been um, actually predicted even before the pandemic occurred. So, you know, there was a lot of um, burnout from the pandemic. And again, this shortage, which was already present, um, we see strains on emergency, emergency departments, which were also battered by the pandemic. Um, so it's just really persistent barriers to care. I mean, you know, access is, is a big one. Um, but people won't see a physician until it becomes so critical that they have to go to the emergency room. Well, um, and I think that something that maybe 
we don't always contextualize access to healthcare as a touch point for so many other things. Like a few months ago, Texas released the report on maternal morbidity and mortality. And it's like, well, where does that become relevant? Oh, wait, like building a relationship with a physician, with a doctor throughout pregnancy, receiving prenatal care, and then actually having a care team that you trust. And if doctors are seen for every one doctor, over 2000 people, Mm. yeah, immediate recipe for all kinds of horrible outcomes and disasters or health and nutrition. Where are parents supposed to get that information if they see their pediatrician once a year at most for seven minutes? That's not, you know, I think we underestimate sometimes how important having a a relationship with a care team can be to building habits that impact so many other things. And so it's so disappointing, especially along the border where the healthcare needs and systems are very unique compared to other and I think parts as, of the state. As, as we move out of this segment, Christine, one of the things that that we we need to mention is that if Texas, as one of ten states that hasn't expanded Medicare, uh, Medicaid would do uh, if, if we. Basically, if we did this expansion, we'd have lots of federal money flowing into the state so that rural hospitals could stay open. Physicians could be in our state and not worry about, uh, you know, the, a population that can't afford to pay. And we wouldn't have these high levels of uninsured patients like we have in Harris County right here in Houston. Uh, it's, it's one of the things, and, and not to mention mental health, which would mm-hmm. be funded. Uh, I mean, there's a, a world of trouble that could be taken care of, uh, uh, by simple expansion of federal dollars. Uh, hey, uh, Christine Thomas, thank you very much for being on the on the program, the Growing Up in America with us, and thanks for all the great work you do, Christine. Thanks, Dad. All right. The stars at night are big and bright Deep in the heart of Texas The prairie sky is wide and high Is that one of your favorite songs, Lauren? You'd love that song. As a born and raised Texan, I believe I have to say yes. Yeah, yeah. And and when you go to the Astros games, you participate. Obviously, I do. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Uh, Gulshan Rahman is on the phone with us. She's the Assistant Director of Compliance and Family Services. Yeah, for Harris County um, Department of Education over at their their Head Start. Gulshan, how are you? Good afternoon. How are y'all doing? Very good. good. Gulshan, I know you want to talk a little bit about COVID's impact on the early childhood education workforce. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and what are we seeing today that we weren't seeing maybe right before the pandemic? Okay. Well, I think as it's the lunch hour, I'd like to give everyone a little bit of food for thought. Ah, and that is ah, <laughs> nice. the importance that we place on our child care staff. So the things that you've been talking about earlier today in your calls are some of the similar themes here with the child care workforce. Mm -hmm. So, for example, shortages. We're seeing shortages right now, and some of those things are a result of what we've gone through during the pandemic. Um, As educators, we place a lot of importance on our students and families because without our students and families, we don't have a program. But we need to remember that also without our staff, we don't have programming yeah. either. If we don't have enough teachers and we don't have enough child care workers, then we can't educate our children. And without question, what we know is that the first five years of life are, the, are so important for learning. That's what lays the, the future, the foundation for the future of children. So if you think about the power that our staff have in shaping the future, that just makes it that much more important for us to think about what they're going through. 
So how families and children experience the stress and the trauma and difficulties of COVID, our staff experienced that too, but they had to bear that burden and come to work and be present for children and families. So you're seeing the burnout and the turnover mm. in our workforce that you are seeing in other places. Yeah. Yeah, and Gulshan, I mean, we talk all the time at Children at Risk, especially post-COVID, but even by, long before COVID, the margins and the, the kind of business model of being a child care provider is not very well. It's, mm. it's not a, you're not, it's not great. No one's going into childcare to become a millionaire or anywhere close. So I'd love to hear, you know, not necessarily just on the financial side, but what the providers that you're working with and talking to, what would they need, you know, from, from us, from Texas to, to make this a more sustainable industry for them and to, to not have it be such a, a burden to just be present and keep, because I know like so many of them really love what they do, mm. but it's just not making sense in the well, system we've you, designed. Yes. As you say, um, I don't think anybody would tell you that you go into childcare. You don't go into daycare. You don't go into Head Start. It's not a money-making business. You do it for the passion that you have for education and the passion that you have for children and families. Um, The biggest thing that's going to make a difference is if we're able to support them with more competitive salaries so that they can keep up with the cost of living. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe we have a statistic that shows us that just over half of childcare workers qualify for at least one form of public assistance. And if you you talk to um, early childcare workers, Head Start teachers, you will find that many of them have more than one job so that they can keep up. Um, you know, with with their own situation. So I think that increasing salary is going to be the most impactful thing that we can do for folks. Yeah, I know that um, a lot of providers were able to increase their salaries, at least temporarily, due to the federal aid that was coming down. But we all know that that is, is running up at the end of this year. What are you expecting to see as, as providers lose that federal aid? And, and what are y'all doing to potentially, hopefully, cushion that kind of cliff that the, they're facing? So I think we'll continue to see some of the difficulties with the end of that aid. Um, but I'm fortunate to work for Harris County Department of Education where we have a lot of support for our Head Start program and ways to increase um, the pay of our teaching staff. We did get a cost of living adjustment from the federal government to try and make our salaries more competitive with school district personnel. But we're also doing other things that are non-monetary incentives to try and um, help people. So for example, we've worked in a couple of mental wellness days throughout the school year. Um, we try to, we're going to try and do one in the fall and one in the spring, and that's just it really is a break. Take a day and go take care of yourself, no students. And then we have a program-wide initiative, a wellness initiative that we call um, Head Start Head Start, um, Head Start Wellness. Mm. And those are little things like um, a step challenge or we're doing a hydration challenge. We got Head Start water bottles, distributed those, and did a challenge for how much water or a beverage you could drink to keep hydrated. Um, so just little things to improve morale, things to show appreciation, because again, our staff were experiencing the same difficulty and challenges as our families, but it wasn't acknowledged in the same way. So we really want people to know how much we appreciate the work that they do. Uh, Galshan, I wanted to ask you one last question before we go, and and that is, 
do you feel like there's enough public awareness around this crisis around early education and its impact on the economic development of our state? I mean, do, do people who don't have kids uh, that are of child early childhood age that need early education, that need child care, do, do people understand what, what on the, you know, how on the edge, on the precipice we are here in terms of economic development and the impact of not being able to have these child care centers in, in our community? I truly don't think that people yeah. understand um, because just the if you put a small investment in early childhood, the return is so great later on. So you can intervene, you know, middle of life, later in life, but it doesn't yield the same result as when you're working in those foundational years of zero to five. Yeah. Wow, very good. Gulshan Rahman is over at the Harris County Department of Education. She's the Assistant Director of Compliance and Family Services. Gulshan, thank you so much for being on the Growing Up in America program, and thank you for all the work you and your team do. Thank you. All righty. Have a good care. one. You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT. All right, let's go over across town to the DePelchin Center and uh, uh, DePelchin Children's Center. Megan Green is with us. She's the Director of Prevention and Early Intervention Services. We want to talk a little bit about fatherhood involvement. Megan, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing great. How, all, how are you all doing? Very, very good. Thanks for being on the Growing Up in America show. Hey, Megan, give us an idea uh, around dad's involvement, fatherhood involvement. Uh, what's going on right now and why, did, why is it so important for, for dads to be involved beyond what we might sort of already know? Yeah, so a lot of really great research has come out just over the last several years about the importance and the effects of father involvement on kids. And one of the biggest things that's come out is the importance of for boys who have involved dads, mm. they're less likely to have behavior problems. And girls who have involved dads are less likely to have psychological problems. Um, so those are two big important things. And, you know, we also know that co-parenting or what we like to say is shared parenting yeah. really makes a difference on reducing mom's parenting stress. So helping moms out, whether that couple is together in a relationship or not, having that dad support those kids can really make a difference on that family. What, what's the percentage? You know, I had this amazing relationship with my daughter, but part of it was because mom was commuting, right, uh, to different cities during early parts of the childhood. And she has this great relationship now with both of us. And I wonder, what what is the percentage of girls and boys that have these great relationships with their dads? Because it seems like more often than not, there's not that close relationship. Yeah, you know, actually, I think the most recent U.S. Census Bureau put out a report that like one in four um, children live without a biological or step or adoptive father in the home. Wow. So it's a pretty scary statistic. Um, but we also know, and, and something that we hear do at Depelchin is that we know that we're not necessarily engaging fathers in the right way, mm-hmm. that there's actually a lot of fathers out there who really want to have a good relationship yeah. with their kids. And we want to involve them and encourage that participation more. We want to help boost their confidence, help them feel that they have everything it takes to play with their kids, provide for their kids. And so programs that we have help teach fathers ways that they can do that. 
And, and I, I love that idea, right? That there are dads that want to be engaged. They just need to be, you know, need to know how to be engaged. And, and I love some of the research that shows, you know, that dads are the ones you're going to push a little higher on the swing, right? They're going to push their kids a little bit. What mom might say, that's a little dangerous, but sometimes kids need sort of a little bit more, right? And dads can provide that. Yes, and actually, with you saying that, there was some interesting data that came out that said things like things that only dads do or mostly dads do, like wrestling, Mm -hmm. rolling around on the floor, there's actually some biological benefits to that. Um, That could go back to just, you know, animalistic things, you know, from that we see in the animal (laughs) world. That's a dad, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but there's actually a lot of benefits to children having that physical contact with their father. Um, we've seen that brain development looks better in those kids, that they do better in school. So it's funny, that correlation, but it's real. You know, the piggyback rides, those types of things yeah. are important. Yeah. Lauren. Yeah. I mean, I think this is also interesting, especially as we, you know, I feel like a lot of, I, I'm going to assume a lot of the, the reasoning for why maybe dads haven't been involved came from, you know, the more traditional society where, Generally, dads were working and moms were home all the time. But now as women are more overwhelmingly also working, they're also sticking with, you know, the full family responsibilities. And I'd love to hear a little bit, you know, more in depth, I guess, on kind of where you mentioned, you know, these dads want to, but they don't know, like, what skills are they thinking they don't have? Where are we going wrong in, like, raising boys to become fathers who feel empowered and, and the value of in being involved with their kids? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we have noticed is looking around in our environment, are we engaging and inviting fathers? Are we using language that shows the importance of them being there? So, for example, one of the things we realized in our programs was we would engage with mom because she was the one contacting us for services, but we failed to ask the right questions. Well, hey, is there a dad at home? Can he participate? How can we include him? Um, our marketing materials, you know, do they show enough images of fathers? Do we ask the right questions of how they can be involved? Um, and then I think using terms like shared parenting is important because no matter what the weight looks like, we need both parents to be involved for that child to be really just fully successful. It's very important that both are involved. And we talk about things that are helpful that we know fathers really um, that help them do well. And one of those things is asking him to do something, giving him a task. Mm. So if we have parents who are co-parenting, who are maybe not together, or they are together, ask dad, hey, can you pack the lunches um, during the week? Or, hey, dad, could you help do their hair in the morning? You know, giving very specific things so that dad's prepared, he knows what to do, he feels confident. And those are things he can take ownership of. Yeah. And I think we hear from our moms a lot that they just kind of do those things. Mm -hmm. And we ask, well, do you ever ask dad to do them or do you ever assign something to him? And it really helps dad feel empowered to take over those things by asking. Well, you know, we talked earlier in the program about the the fastest growing part of our population, the youngest part of our population, which is Latino in the state of Texas. What What are the cultural differences that you find in dealing with Latino men uh, and Latino dads, uh, because you know historically the the Latino family is very close, but the you know the dad plays a different role, right? When we talk about Latinos visiting schools and parent engagement, it looks very different than maybe parent engagement does for uh, for whites and blacks. Talk a little bit about 
Latino dads and the differences there, Megan? Yes. So we definitely see differences. And sometimes we hear from our moms that they are afraid to ask dad Mm. to help participate more in the parenting because of how they might feel judged by other family members because they know that there's an expectation that mom should be able to take care of everything. And so we really try to work with, if if we can work work with both parents, it's even better to say, hey, you know, we can destigmatize these things. And while still respecting culture, it's just about looking at how mom plays a very important part in that kid's life, and so does dad, and they're both very different. And so if a family understands the differences of how just dad involvement can really benefit that child's reading ability, benefit their overall brain development, benefit them, you know, not being less likely to get into substance abuse later on, then we can understand why helping dad even maybe have a choice in what he participates in, in the family. And, and hey, you know, there's, it's, we're not taking away from any one person's role, but we're just saying there's a place there for him. Wow. And um, we're seeing younger generations of Latino families change that mindset, that we're seeing a shift in that because younger fathers tend to want to be more involved for some reason. There's been a shift in that culture. Yeah. Lauren, you have a great relationship with your dad, right? What, what is that? Uh, why do you think that is? Mm, that's an interesting question. I mean, mm. I feel like a lot of it has to do with this idea of like, he like there were things that he did you know for the most for most of my life like he was you know out of the house working while my mom worked some but like still was working from home or more flex hours but like he did like bedtime reading like that Mm. was you know always his job or you know there were certain things as I got older that you know we would go he hunts and so we'd go out to where he would hunt and he would you know we'd do all that and have those fun like outdoor weekends or we'd go to you know youth austin for a ut football game and so he like they were carved out bonding opportunities yeah bonding opportunities that were but they were regular you know it wasn't like one off we'd go do this it was like i knew that in the fall a couple of times we'd go to austin for a weekend and you know you're driving there and you're chatting in the car and so i think having those spaces that were out like me my and his space separate from you know what i might do with my mom like those were the things that really built i think those continuous things rather than the one-offs right Right. i think are important and my mom like wasn't involved like i think it was big like it was his thing that he liked and he invited me into that and i think that was big ready for our final five questions with megan the hardest questions of the show this is very tough megan these are tough questions lightning (laughs) round fun five first off uh megan what did you want to be when you grew up I, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Ah. Yes. I'd say I landed pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty close. Very good. Speaking of bedtime reading, what was your favorite book to either have read to you or to read yourself as a child? Oh, um, I would have to say probably anything by Dr. Seuss. Oh, wow. I was Dr. I read Seuss. Those over and over. Famous Person's yeah. Day. My daughter's favorite was Wacky Wednesday by Dr. Seuss. And I would always intervene. I would put different words in there, like her best friends and stuff like that. Hey, uh, if when they make the Megan Green story in Hollywood, Megan, who's going to play you? Oh, my goodness. Um, I guess the first person that comes to mind is Reese Witherspoon for some reason. Great choice. <laughs> Great choice. <laughs> well, see, now I have a new picture of you, right? Yeah. Reese Witherspoon. Very good. All right. It's been a long week. It's a rainy day. What is what comfort movie are you unwinding with? Oh, um, I, I would say 
something like Still Magnolias or oh. something funny, comedy, just, you know, just to, to get a laugh out of me. All right, last question. Last question. I want to know, what was your favorite food growing up as a kid? Favorite food growing up as a kid? Um, I loved ice cream. I would say that was always a fun treat in the summer and something we always had as a staple around the house. Wow, ice cream. Do you have a favorite ice cream? Good question. Favorite ice cream. Um, you know, I don't really eat ice cream anymore, oh, but if okay. I did, I would say chocolate chip cookie dough. Chocolate chip. What's your favorite, Lauren? Mint chocolate chip. Wow. What's yours? You know, I've been eating this Jenny's ice cream, this brown oh, butter no. almond oh. brittle. Holy you cow. You would have a bougie favorite <laughs> ice cream. Chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry aren't enough for this guy. He's got to oh. get chocolate, brittle, caramel, Megan Green, our fatherhood expert. Megan, I need to get you. We need to get you back on the program because uh, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing over at Pelchin, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Say hi to all your team for us, okay? We will. Thank you for having me. All right. so much. Have Take a good care. one. Very good. Um, I like having the music in the background, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it was yeah, ambiance. So, ambiance music. Very good. So I, I just love this whole idea, though, talking about fatherhood and dads. And it's something we probably don't talk about enough, right, in general as sort of children's experts yeah. like we are, Lauren. And, I, and again, I mean, we kind of got into this. I think the way your average household looks has evolved really fast in yeah. the last decades. and. It's time for our parenting advice and our kind of idea of what is normal to, I think, catch up. Yeah. And whether yeah. that's, you know, two parents or community or what it is, like, I just think we need to start talking more outwardly about how important it is to have safe adults at yeah. home and, yeah. and involved adults. Very good. Hey, were you at that motherhood summit that was uh, two weeks ago? Were you? I was, to... I was in part of it, yeah. Yeah, that, that was uh, pretty good. What's the next big summit that we have going on at Children's? Do you know off the top it, of your head? Yeah, it's our early education summit. Next so week. fitting, yeah, with what we just talked about with Golshan. I'm going to guess because Kim Coffrin's involved. We're going to talk about ECE workforce. We're going to talk about building a more sustainable infrastructure and just the how important it is. As she said, I mean, it's... 85% of brain development in the first three years. So before public pre-K, in that zero to three space, especially, but all through up until kindergarten. And what I think are we doing? And think next week we also have our children at school food rankings, seeing how school districts across the state are doing in terms of using the U.S. Department of Agriculture money available to them mm-hmm. to feed our children. So we'll be talking about that. Hey, that's it for us here at Growing Up in America. For Lauren Beagle, I'm Bob Sanborn. Uh, we'll see you next time on Growing Up America. We do this each and every week for, for children. children. See you next time. With a dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, access. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time. Look to my right, and I see the Hollywood sign. This is all so crazy. Everybody seems so famous. My tummy's turning, and I'm feeling kind of homesick. Too much pressure, and I'm nervous. That's when the taxi man turned on the
my taxi cab, everybody's looking at me now. Like, who's that chick that's rocking kicks? She gotta be from out of town. So hard with my girls on around me, it's definitely not a Nashville party. Cause all I see is the letters. I guess I never got the 